Volume 2. Legends of Betrayal. The Shattering of the Imperium. I was there, the day Horus slew the Emperor. Garviel Loken. In the fading light of the 31st millennium, the furious blaze of the Great Crusade simmered down to mere embers. Upon the alien world of Olinor, the Astartes waged a brutal war on the Orc Empire. Among them, the Lunar Wolves, the spear tip of the Astartes, had carved their name into history with blood and steel. This war was not one of political maneuvering or advanced weaponry. It was a visceral clash of ideology and primal brutality, waged against the savage Orc race. Towering Orc constructions loomed over the desolate battlefield, seemingly bound together by nothing more than scrap metal and the crude psychic force known as the Wa. In a twisted echo of the Mechanicum's devotion to the Machine God, these crude engines of war were fueled by the Orcs' sheer lust for battle. This fervor juxtaposed sharply with the enlightenment of the Emperor's imperial truth, held high by the Astartes, though their superior weaponry was similarly maintained by the mysterious pseudo-religious rituals of the Mechanicum. In this theater of blood and grime, the Lunar Wolves displayed their prowess, every super-soldier a testament to their Primarch's gene seed. The favored son of the Emperor Horus himself guided the Legion, positioning them at the vanguard of the Crusade. With the newest Mark IV armor and Terminator suits at their disposal, the Lunar Wolves were the first to engage with lost civilizations, the first to shine under the spotlight of fame and envy. Yet, unbeknownst to them, they were sowing the seeds of their eventual downfall, leading to a schism that would necessitate a complete reformation of the Astartes' structure. With Olinor subdued, the Lunar Wolves turned their gaze towards the fringes of the Imperium, the far-flung stars where wayward human civilizations clung to existence. They found themselves drawn into a vast empire governed by a pretender to the Emperor's throne. Horus, however, wished to steer his legion away from a bloody war. He saw the twilight of the Crusade on the horizon, foreseeing a future of diplomacy and peace. The Lunar Wolves, notorious for their spear-tip assaults, had to learn to temper their inherent violence for the inevitable change. On Darwin, a world dominated by a false emperor, the Lunar Wolves were once again called upon to enforce the Emperor's will. Despite their desire for a peaceful transition, they were thrust back into the carnage they were all too familiar with. But even the brightest flames must flicker. As the fury of the Great Crusade dwindled into its twilight hours, the Emperor, his visage a mask of inscrutable intent, withdrew to the sanctity of terror. An enigmatic shroud enveloped him as his attentions turned to a project of such secrecy not even his cherished sons, the Primarchs, were afforded a glimpse into its depths. With the Emperor's gaze turned inwards, his once omniscient guidance was missed. The administrative reins fell into the hands of the Council of Terror, bureaucrats who tried in vain to mimic the virtuoso, but they were mere mortals, susceptible to the worst of human follies, greed and corruption inept in curbing humanity's inherent shortcomings. The grand orchestra of the Great Crusade that once roared across the universe dwindled to a melancholic melody. Yet, the universe abhors a vacuum. In the Emperor's absence, a figure had to rise, 
a leader to stoke the embers of the Great Crusade. Horus, the favored son, one of the first among the Primarchs to be reunited with his father, was chosen. Upon him was bestowed the title of War Master, a mantle of colossal expectations. This title, a double-edged sword of power and responsibility, now lay in Horus's grip, the fate of the entire Imperium held in balance. In the gloaming hours of the 30th millennium, the stage was set for the dramatic acts that would echo through the eons to come. Two centuries had passed since the genesis of the Great Crusade. Horus, the newly anointed War Master, felt the tendrils of change stirring in his heart. Fresh from their savage victory over the loathsome green tide of orcs at Ulanor, the Lunar Wolves stood poised on the precipice of a new epoch. Theirs was an existence spent in the gore-soaked trenches of brutal war, a crucible that forged them into the Emperor's most fearsome instrument. But Horus sensed the dawning of a new era, one pregnant with opportunity and fraught with peril. Little did he realize that the transformation he yearned for was a harbinger of unimaginable tragedy, a turning point that would catapult the Astartes into an age of eternal night. The unpredictable tempests of the warp hurled the 63rd expedition on an unforeseen trajectory. Some whispered that this was the malevolent machinations of chaos, others dismissed it as mere cosmic chance. On arrival, they found themselves facing an isolated empire, ruled by a man who claimed himself emperor of mankind, the ruler of nine defiant worlds. This false emperor, his lineage rooted in the Age of Strife, had safeguarded humanity's flame against the storm-tossed darkness of the warp. His eyes gleamed with dreams of a unified human empire, reaching out to the stars under his leadership. But his hubris and utter ignorance of what was about to bestow upon him proved his undoing. When Horus's emissaries, Astartes diplomats clad in ceramite, were butchered in the false emperor's palace, the Warmaster's heart sank in anguish. Among the slain was Sir Janus, a trusted confidant and a valued voice on Horus's war council. The sting of his death cut deeper, for he was not merely a warrior, he was a son, a creation born of Horus's own genetic legacy. Yet a spark of restraint flickered in the heart of the Warmaster. Known for favoring diplomacy's olive branch as much as war's flaming sword, Horus resolved to grant the false emperor one last chance for peaceful surrender. Despite the corrosive pain of loss, the Warmaster delivered an ultimatum to the pretender, this time with the implied threat of a clenched fist behind the extended hand. But the Emperor was resolute in his defiance. There would be no parley, only unconditional submission. Thus, 600 Imperial warships plunged from the heavens. No more negotiations, no more compromises. The Pretender's Empire was to be purged in purifying fire. The Lunar Wolves fought with a vengeance, their fury echoing through the besieged palace, their wrath a response to their fallen brothers. Each inch of their advance was bought with the lives of the Pretender's elite guard, shrouded in stealth fields and armed with arcane weapons that could pierce even the Astartes' formidable power armor. They fought with a ferocity only bred in the crucible of war, ascending towards the throne room. The enemy was formidable, wielding arcane weapons that threatened even Astartes' armor. As the Lunar Wolves breached the throne room, a cataclysmic weapon was unleashed, tossing them about like leaves in a storm. The scene was one of chaos and death, warriors crushed beneath their own armor, 
lives snuffed out in shattered glass and pools of blood. Yet when all hope seemed lost, a piercing light cleaved the gloom. In a flare of teleportation energy, Horus appeared, his towering figure silhouetted against the radiant warp light. His bolter roared, punching a hole through the false emperor and his golden throne. Horus, resplendent and majestic, stood amidst the chaos, a titan amongst men. Smoke curling from the smoldering corpse, he bellowed his proclamation to the heavens, and so will I deal with all tyrants. Part 1 The difference between gods and demons largely depends upon where one is standing. Primarch Logar Historical accounts suggest that in this age, the Astartes were not ignorant of the taint of chaos, having fought the corrupted psychers and planetary infestations that it bred. They knew the dangers of the warp and the vulnerability of those who dared to navigate its treacherous currents. However, it was during this time that the corrupted blade of chaos carved a fresh wound into the Lunar Wolves' history. Captain Loken, Newly appointed Mournival Council member to Horus and commander of the 10th Company, bore witness to a brother's fall. Xavier Jubal, once a trusted brother, fell prey to the insidious influence of chaos. It was in the shadow of the Whisperheads, a bastion held by fanatical defenders rebelling against the Imperium, which Jubal's fall would send shockwaves through the Astartes, revealing a dark secret that had been hidden from them for centuries. The Lunar Wolves had descended upon the Whisperheads like avenging angels, equipped in their newly minted Terminator armor. Their fellow Astra Militarum Imperial soldiers had faltered against the enemy for weeks, taking heavy casualties as they had fought for every inch of the battlefield. The Astartes had extinguished the lives of the 978 defenders in a mere 68 minutes without suffering a single loss. It was a grim reminder of the vast gulf between them and the beleaguered Astra Militarum soldiers. Yet even amidst this victory, a sinister whisper echoed in their minds, Samus is the man beside you. Samus is death. It was a voice that could be heard over the comms to all those on the field. It was clever tools of propaganda deployed by the enemy, Loken had assured his fellow brothers. And yet doubt seeped into his mind as his entourage those not linked into the communication system could hear the voice echoing in their mind. Samus is coming. Crackling over the comms was fellow brother Astartes Jubal, a man seemingly lost in hallucinations, his voice hauntingly disconnected from reality. Speaking of things unseen, and echoes of a voice which they could all hear worming its way into their thoughts. Samus is speaking, he muttered over and over again. Loken ordered him restrained. I am Samus, he proclaimed, his voice full of a power not his own, and unleashed a salvo of rounds into his fellow Astartes. The rounds punched bloody cavities into their armored chests. Skulls exploded into a gory cloud of red and fragments of bone. Astartes fell one after the other, brothers cut down by their kin. This was not just a violation of law, but a shattering of sacred bonds. It was a moment that would reverberate through eternity, a horrifying spectacle of brotherhood torn asunder.
Still, even as the gravity of the unthinkable unfolded before them, none of the remaining brothers moved to restrain him. Loken, gripped by determination, lunged at Jubal, even as the rogue Astartes continued his deadly fusillade, his bolts biting into ceramite and flesh alike. Loken met Jubal with all the strength an Astartes could muster, each strike capable of ending a mortal life. Their power armor groaned and chipped under the ferocious impact as they grappled for supremacy. Jubal, fueled by an otherworldly strength, could not be pinned. He threw off his would-be restrainers, sending them sprawling like discarded toys. Their blades met in a maelstrom of raw power and violent intent, forcing Loken to adopt a desperate reactionary defense. The man he knew as a brother was lost to a monstrous aggressor, unmatched in his frenzy. Their grim ballet of war continued until Jubal, in a triumphant roar of I am Samus, plunged his sword into Loken's shoulder, but it was a pyrrhic victory. For in doing so, he presented an opening to Loken. With a grim set to his jaw, Loken drove his sword through Duval's chest, the point erupting from his backplate. Samus is done, Loken spat, his words a bitter elegy to a fallen brother. The Lunar Wolves had been exposed to a dark secret and the ghost of a threat they had only begun to comprehend. As the echo of Duval's final words rang in their ears, they were forced to reckon with the reality of the darkness within their ranks. As the Great Crusade swept across the galaxy, the Astartes legions often served as vanguards, the spear tip that thrust into the heart of new civilizations long disconnected from terror. Just as often, they unearthed the decrepit remains of societies, their sparks snuffed out by unknown calamity. Their duties varied as the worlds they encountered. Sometimes they were to confront giant bipedal lizard warrior species who were ferocious as they were tough. On one occasion, they uncovered a sentient machine society. The civilization that birthed them, a forgotten whisper kept alive by the roaming AI left in the wake of their lost civilization. These machines were considered heresy and stamped out in a costly campaign by the Mechanicum. On another occasion, Loken, council member to Horus and captain in the Lunar Wolves, led his Astartes through an intricate maze of subterranean habitats on a world long devoid of life. The only testament to its past inhabitants was a map of terror buried deep beneath the surface. It was an anachronistic artifact, showing a terror long lost to time. It held the echo of coastlines and mountains drowned in the relentless march of civilization. It provoked questions with no answers, all lost to a mysterious cataclysmic event. Despite the immunity to fear bred into his very genes, the unsettling absence of life and the inexplicable existence of the terror map stirred unease in him. Reeling from the horrors of the encounter with Xaver Jubal, Loken sought the presence of the renowned Iterator Sindaman. Sindaman, a master orator, was revered across the Imperium for his insatiable quest for knowledge and his deep understanding of the human psyche. Are spirits real? Can a man truly be possessed? Loken found himself asking Sindaman, 
his voice barely above a whisper. Saviors, transformation, the inhuman strength, the violence, and the madness, the images haunted him, and he needed answers. Zinderman looked at Loken, his gaze steady, eyes gleaming with a tranquil confidence. He dismissed Loken's question with a logical explanation. A malfunction of the gene seed, a debilitating disease that drove him to madness and violence, he offered. Sinderman's words were crafted to soothe, to dispel the terrifying possibility of the supernatural. But despite the iterator's conviction, Loken's disquiet lingered, a seed of doubt firmly planted. That seed would grow into a terrifying reality when they both bore witness to Xavier's grotesque resurrection. The once proud Astartes, bound and grievously wounded, now stood as a mutated abomination, his humanity ravaged by the warp's touch. His form expanded and twisted in ways that did not make sense, as he seemed to flicker within the spectrum of reality, his flesh bloating and rotting and his eyes became pools of blood. Loken emptied his bolter into the monstrous entity Duval had become. The deafening sound of ninety bolter rounds from fellow brothers nearby tore through the silence, their deadly song matching the grotesque dance of death that was Duval's final moments. They burned the remains, ensuring that the nightmare was truly over. Yet the knight's revelations weren't over. Horus, the Warmaster himself, shared the bitter truth with Loken, a truth known to the Emperor and a select few, of the warp and the grotesque entities lurking within its depth. Loken's mind, already stretched to its limits, grappled with the new revelation. This was the universe's dark secret, a secret he now shared. The Great Crusade, he realized, was not just a war for reuniting humanity. It was a war against the nightmarish entities that lurked in the shadowy corners of existence, and it was a war they could ill afford to lose. Lucan had stood face to face with the abominations of the warp, the ghostly specters that invaded the minds of unshielded psychers, yet his experience had never extended beyond that. Horus, his countenance unreadable, echoed Loken's sentiment. There is a stark truth, Loken, he began. None can claim to truly understand the warp, not even the Emperor himself. We exploit the warp, harnessing it as a conduit between the stars, but it is so much more. It teems with potent untamed energy, neither good nor evil but raw and primordial. The warp births apparitions, demonic specters that suggest an archaic cosmic scheme one formed by gods and the supernatural. But we Astartes have cast off the superstitious shackles that once bound humanity. We see these warp spawn not as spirits or demons, but as echoes of a realm we scarcely comprehend. These are not new threats, but simply old fears cloaked in alien form, intrusive entities that impinge upon our reality in ways we struggle to fathom. There are no gods lurking in the void, no malevolent overseers, no absolute evil, the cosmos is too sterile for such melodrama. All that exists are aberrations, and we must erase them just as we do any Xenos threat. Horus's words were said with conviction, an ironclad belief that left no room for doubt. He explained how the warp was close to the surface of the planet, crafting myths and legends of ancient horror. The warp was let loose, and you paid the price. Dubal was vulnerable, his anger leaving gaps for the warp to exploit, Samus was a voice from that realm, anchoring itself to the flesh of Xavier. 
There was a warp storm just before the incident. The data is undeniable. Why is so little known about the warp? Loken found himself asking, his voice barely more than a whisper. Because so little can be comprehended, replied Horus. Another failed attempt at a peaceful resolution weighed heavy on the War Master. The burden of his calling bestowed upon him by the Emperor insinuated itself into Horus like a blackened vine. It twisted and coiled, a serpent in his mind, quietly strangling the unblemished loyalty he once held. A seed of doubt was planted, whispered into the fertile darkness of his thoughts by the merest suggestion of the impossible. Only the Emperor could broker peace, while he, the mighty Horus, was bound to the bloody drumbeat of war. This insidious seed sprouted, nourished by his desperate hunger to equal the Emperor, blinding him with a raw, gnawing obsession. It was a creeping poison, a malignant growth that spread its tendrils through his spirit, which would eventually seduce him onto a path of irrevocable damnation. Part 2 you are walking along the shores of a lake, Cinderman said to Loken. A boy is drowning. Do you let him drown because he was foolish enough to fall into the water before he had learned to swim? Or do you fish him out and teach him how to swim? Loken shrugged. The latter. What if he fights you off as you attempt to save him? Because he is afraid of you. Because he doesn't want to learn how to swim? I save him anyway. Private conversation between Captain Loken of the Lunar Wolves and primary iterator Cinderman. The Warmaster had his secrets, his unseen vulnerabilities hidden beneath a facade of steely command. Only a select few were allowed past this barrier. His Mournival, a small council of veteran Astartes, served as his closest confidants, advisors and mirrors to his own tumultuous thoughts. However, a schism was starting to spiderweb its way through the once solid foundations of the Mournival. Horus, striving to decipher the Emperor's will towards peace, was beginning to paint with broader, more complicated strokes. A few among his trusted council, however, rebuffed this change. The pushback twisted the air with tension, sparking fierce disputes that etched lines of resentment on the face of their unity. The War Master's tolerance had its limits. He bore his fangs, reminding the Mournival that he was the appointed executor of the Emperor's will. His word was law, his decisions final. But tensions had risen and with it the beginnings of a fragmentation of the Mournival. These would not be the only tensions that Horus must contend with. The Primarchs, demigods wrought from the Emperor's own flesh, bore the complex ties of siblinghood, a maelstrom of rivalry, envy, affection, and deep-rooted love. Horus and Sanguinius, the Lord of the Blood Angels, shared a bond forged in the crucible of battle and camaraderie. It was a relationship of mutual respect, a playful dance tempered by solemn gravity when the situation demanded. Sanguinius, beloved by the stars themselves, emanated kindness and charisma, standing as a beacon amidst the cosmos as the head of the Ninth Legion. Sanguinius counseled his brother. He saw the fractures amongst the Primarchs, a chasm that Horus must bridge. Dissent and rivalry, he warned, could not be allowed to fester, Horus, however, roared against this council. There were those of his brothers he confided in and trusted, he exclaimed, such as Dawn and Gilliman, 
both military geniuses. Indeed, Rogel Dawn was perhaps the most finest military mind of all the Primarchs, and where Dawn was reserved and resolute, Horus who was flamboyant and charismatic. It was said that Dawn was the unmovable object, and Horus was the unstoppable force. But becoming Warmaster had sowed discontent among the brothers, especially from those who felt it should be theirs. Angron was unhappy and jealous. Russ and Lion were cynical but resolved, and Fulgrim's unabashed arrogance was teetering on insolence that mocked the unity they stood for. But Sanguinius persisted, his words carrying a soft insistence that masked their steel. He implored Horus to accept the Emperor's gift, to announce the Lunar Wolves as the Sons of Horus, and thereby reveal the trust and power granted to them by the Emperor himself, and soothe the concerns of his brothers. In the twilight hours of the Great Crusade, the Remembrancers joined the Astartes legions at the spearhead of war. These sanctioned historians, scribes of the cosmos, were entrusted with the task of etching these pivotal epochs into the bedrock of history, creating glimmers of truth within the murky depths of the imperial narrative. They were viewed by the Astartes with trepidation, perceived as bureaucratic encroachment and harbingers of changing times. However, it was through their records that the Astartes were revealed as individuals, each with their own idiosyncrasies and strengths. Some humorous, some stern, some renowned for their swordsmanship, others for their mastery of the bolt gun. They were more than weapons, they were individuals, and this humanity would soon prove to be both their greatest strength and most profound vulnerability. Among the distinguished individuals accompanying the Great Crusade were the iterators, masterful orators and skilled persuaders. They spun narratives of propaganda, broadcasting the imperial truth throughout the farthest reaches of the galaxy, bolstering morale, and propagating the Emperor's divine mandate. As per the instruction of Warmaster Horus, these iterators were also entrusted with the education and guidance of the Astartes during the expansive voyages between worlds. The process of becoming an iterator was even more demanding than that of an Astartes, where one in a thousand might be physically and mentally robust enough to withstand the integration of flesh and bone into armor, only one in a hundred thousand could aspire to the intellectual and rhetorical prowess demanded of an iterator. Among these exceptional individuals, one name stood apart, Sindeman, primary iterator of the 63rd expedition. Revered by all, it was said that even the emperor held him in high esteem, entrusting his guidance to his favored son, Horus. It was in Cinderman's discourse with Captain Loken of the Lunar Wolves, a trusted confidant of Horus, that we glimpse the true individuality of the Astartes. In a secluded exchange, Loken, already troubled by the increasing influence of the Lodges and the insidious tendrils of chaos, was provoked by Cinderman to reflect upon his place within the Imperium. Loken confessed, as a warrior, he was a man of conscience, driven by unwavering faith in the Emperor and his cause. Yet as a weapon, he was devoid of conscience, existing only to kill until instructed otherwise. In these times of bloodshed and savagery, he didn't question, for a weapon had no need of such faculties. However, Sindeman urged him to remember that a time of peace would follow the war, and warriors like Loken must be ready for a galaxy in which a weapon would not be enough. Such was Horus's optimism, and the task he set for Sindeman. 
Yet the peace that was promised seemed a dwindling fantasy, and many Brother Astartes believed that the Imperium was destined for the eternal night of war. Cinderman left Loken with a final musing. When empires defy us, it is necessary to bring down the Imperial Fist upon them, and the Astartes are indeed the armored gauntlet of this force. However, we must not forget that the Fist can also be an open hand of friendship. Cinderman leaned closer to Loken, whispering, We are mighty because we are just and not the other way around, never forget that. These words of caution echoed a bloodstain on the Imperium, a time marred in secrecy known to few, in which the Thunder Warriors which came before the Astartes were wiped out, because they could only be a fist, but never the open hand. Deep within the gargantuan bowels of the Astartes war vessels, secret meetings were held, veiled under the guise of lodges. These clandestine gatherings were not sanctioned by the Emperor, and the Primarchs who were aware of their existence merely turned a blind eye. Loken, however, was disturbed by these secret councils. A bitter taste filled his mouth at their mention. For him, they were a malignant growth nestled deep in the heart of every legion, a cancer that could prove deadly. Yet, he had discovered that even in his own company, many members, from Astartes to those at the very top of the Warmaster's Council, belonged to these lodges. His comrades of the Mournival, also clandestine attendees of the Lodge, attempted to placate him. They described the Emperor as a figure so far removed from the human experience that he could not comprehend their need for brotherhood. They spoke of their aspirations, their doubts, which they could express as equals within the Lodge without fear of punishment or retribution. They proclaimed that the Lodge maintained the Legion's pulse, promoted understanding across the ranks, and ultimately made them formidable in combat. The Mournival spoke of the Lodges as ancient institutions, predating even the Unification Wars, where Astartes could share stories without the formalities and hierarchy that their service demanded. Loken felt a wave of uncertainty wash over him. He had misjudged this thing, but the nagging concern remained. He feared the secrets they might be willing to keep when bound by loyalty to their clandestine brotherhood and shielded by darkness free from the cleansing scrutiny of open discourse. And so, Loken knew, he felt it in his bones, that these lodges were a hidden danger, a silent storm gathering beneath the clear skies of unity, a looming shadow threatening the very foundation of their brotherhood. But little did he know that from these lodges, chaos would seep into the very fabric of the Astartes Brotherhood, and bring the Imperium to its knees. Part 3 We are mighty because we are right. We are not right because we are mighty. Vile the hour when that reversal becomes our credo. Primary Iterator Cinderman In the long shadow of history, Horus, the ill-fated Warmaster, was often seen merely as a brute, a warrior, a hulking specter of war. Yet this understanding shrouded the truth in a veil of ignorance. Horus was not simply a pawn of chaos, but a grand chess master, a virtuoso of the political grand stage. He bore not just the steel of a warrior, but the guile of a seasoned politician, the introspection of a philosopher at war with himself, and the persuasive allure of a diplomat. When the time came to admonish his fellow legions, 
he did not wield his fist, but turned instead to his most cunning weapon, the Mournival. Like hounds, they were unleashed, their snarls echoing the discord that Horus intended to knit into unity under his own shadowed banner. The grand theater of war played out, a maddening pantomime that veiled Horus's machinations, even as scorn simmered for his counsel. The aftermath of a war, bloody and grueling, had etched itself into the steel of Horus's resolve. Across two embattled planets, his war machine had roared, leaving naught but ashes in its wake. It was here, amid the aftermath, that the Warmaster found an opportunity for redemption. A phoenix rising from the ruins, cloaked in the majesty of a newly discovered empire, the Interrex. They were an empire gleaming like a rare jewel amidst the infinite expanse of space, were his chance to clasp the elusive hand of redemption. The Interrex were a grand spectacle of civilization, their societies shimmering with advanced technology, as majestic and graceful as the soaring spires that pierced their skies. Yet beneath this veneer of civilization, the Interrex harbored a deep-seated paranoia, their suspicion wound tight around their every action. Horus's diplomatic envoy was met with the cold, silent indifference of stagnation, the Interrex stalling, a creeping dread coiling its way through their dealings. The Interrex bore the gene seed of terror, a shared ancestry that tethered them to the same hallowed ground as the Imperium. They held terror in a sort of awe, a reverence that could be a bridge to bond them with Horus's relentless expeditionary force. Yet, trepidation clung to their hearts. How could they trust one who bore the title of Warmaster? A title that rumbled with the thunder of war, a stark antithesis to the tranquil philosophy of the Interrex. The veneer of peace began to crack, as sinister undercurrents stirred beneath the surface. Uncertainty rippled through the ranks, the coming storm brewing in the hearts of warriors and diplomats alike. For even amid the triumphant fanfare of discovery, the shadow of the Warmaster loomed large, casting a pall of fear and doubt over the promised unity of the New Age. At the onset of their dealings with the Interax, discordant voices close to the Warmaster called for war. Their tolerance for the Xenos engendered a chilling horror within the War Council. Horus, ever the Stoic, eased his council's fears. His voice steady amidst the rising tensions, decreed that the Interax should not and will not be subjugated. A steely resolve flashed in his lupine eyes, a refusal to repeat the mistakes of the past. He reminded his council of the two centuries that had passed since the height of the Civil War, and that violence was no longer their only recourse. He would not succumb to the ruthless dictates of an ideological creed others believed the Emperor set. In the shadows of the strategy room, Horus found solace with his confidence. There was Loken, a loyalist in temperament and conviction, and Sanguinius, his angelic brother who could be said to be his most trusted confidant. In a rare moment of vulnerability, Horus opened his heart and spoke of a fond memory of his time with his father, the Emperor. His words weaving an image of an ancient Terran astrological book, a gift from his father. The tome catalogued celestial zodiacs, each a symbol of humanity's ambition, determination and strength. I told him I liked them all, Horus recounted, his voice echoing in the chamber. Each one represented a different aspect I admired. His father had prophesied that the twenty Primarchs would exemplify the twenty Zodiacs, and Horus would be the Sagittary, the warlike horseman. 
It was a figure revered in ancient Terran mythology, unyielding and resilient. As he considered his path, Horus gazed at his ring, an artifact from the time of the Emperor's birth, adorned with the Sagittary. His destiny was clear. In the Emperor's absence, he would guide the Astartes and the Imperium. This story is an important tale in the annals of the heresy, but one often overlooked, for it tells us of a man, well-rounded, full of ambition and desires to better himself and serve his father. And yet, the cruel mistress of destiny would overshadow the man, and set him on the path of destruction and inner turmoil. He was the chosen one, a destiny written in the stars, yet he was deeply insecure that he shoulder such a burden. As the crusade neared its conclusion, the mantle of leadership weighed heavily upon his soul. In a rare moment of self-disclosure he mused, speaking with agonized vulnerability. I am war master because the emperor was busy. He had more important work than the crusade. He believed the time had come to pass the work onto the Primarchs. So he may do some unknown work he won't tell me, he hasn't told anyone. He did not want to burden me but I'm no fool I can speculate. The Imperium needs the warp as its lifeblood. I believe he is unlocking the secrets and mastery of the warp, for without it we will fall. The final meeting with the Interex, designed to forge an alliance, instead became the opening act for the heresy. Horus, flanked by his Mournival council members and personal bodyguards, met the Interax for the final time to broker a peace. Yet, an undercurrent of suspicion and fear permeated the meeting. They harbored deep-rooted paranoia about chaos infiltrating their society, and to them, the War Master was a mirror reflection to all they understood about chaos. During negotiations, the flames of suspicion were fanned when a dangerous weapon of chaos was stolen from their Hall of Devices. Despite their paranoia, the Interex's warriors were honorable, demanding the Astartes' disarmament. But the Astartes, with their War Master on the planet, would not yield. The venerated bodyguards of Horus, alongside the steadfast Astartes warriors, tore through the Interex ranks, carving a path towards their commander. There they found him, attired in the humble garb of diplomacy, white robes and deprived of weapons and armor. He barked orders at his guards, a tempest of resolve and determination. Yet even in the thick of the melee, he sought answers, the unraveling of this tapestry of betrayal. In the smoldering ruins of the Hall of Devices, the Interax's accusations hung heavy in the air. What has happened here to cause such sudden offense? He questioned, his voice echoing in the chaos. The truth was revealed in the words of the dying guardian to the Hall of Devices. The weapon had been stolen, and they were the culprits. Horus gazed upon the devastation, and recognized the precipice they now teetered on, a chasm of inevitable war. Horus screamed into the sky, Why have you tasked me with this, father? It is too hard, too much to do alone. He lamented into the inky void, a mournful aria echoing amidst the chaos. In the heart of battle, the line between the Emperor's son and the War Master blurred. In that moment, an arrow buried itself into his bicep, and an Astarte's son fell before him. He was jolted back to the raw reality of the moment. Picking up a fallen Astarte's weapon, he growled. If they are to fear us, let us give them a good reason. Illuminate them.
The day bore witness to the fury of the Warmaster, a tempest unmatched. He claimed his destiny, his title, with an unwavering resolve that echoed across the cosmos. His lunar wolves, his sons, would now bear a new title, one that would etch their deeds across the annals of time, the Sons of Horus. Yet even amidst his triumph, the gnawing roots of distrust and paranoia began to claw their way into his heart. Chaos, like an insidious plague, had already seeped into the Astartes, and it was only a matter of time before its malevolent grasp ensnared the Warmaster himself, threatening to crumble the Imperium from within. In the coming decades, the imminent fall of the Warmaster would bring the Imperium to its knees and tear the Astartes Legion asunder. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this tale, consider listening to the full audible book, Horus Rising by Dan Abnett. Affiliate link below. To break with ritual is to break with faith. The 16th warning of the cult Mechanicus. It never rained on Mars, not anymore. Eons past whispered of a time when this world basked in storms that carved great canyons and waterfalls, a paradise swept by fierce coastal winds. But those days were buried beneath millennia. Mars, the Mechanicum's crown jewel, the sanctified heart of the machine cult, now suffocated in volcanic smog, oppressed by continent-spanning refineries and the blistering heat of countless forges. Atop Olympus Mons, ancient Paladin-class knights, their glory dimmed by time's erosion, and machinations lost to superstition, stood sentinel. The warriors of the Mechanicum, accompanied by innumerable tech priests and their servile adepts, watched as a sprawling, impossibly large city floated down from the heavens. Mars had forgotten the embrace of rain, yet today the smog-choked skies wept. The hallowed ground, ungraced by precipitation for times beyond memory, shivered under a deluge. Titanic storm clouds roiled above, seething with electricity, as though the very heavens writhed in agony at the descent of something divine. Enigmatic cogitators within the nights churned in restless anticipation. As golden luminescence cleaved the tempest, electric tempests bridged sky to soil, unveiling a city of impossible geometry and splendor. Its prow bore a grand eagle, wrought in gold, and from its other flank, Massive ramparts challenged the skies. The sheer force keeping this leviathan aloft defied every axiom known to the Mechanicum. A wonder beyond comprehension. With the elegance of a drifting feather, the titanic edifice made its landing, its vastness eclipsed in billows of superheated steam and Martian dust. As the mists retreated, the behemoth stood revealed, a city with the stature of titans, its edifices dwarfing even Mars's mightiest cliffs. Each golden plate shimmered, infused with painstaking craft, every inch an artistic devotion. This was no mere vessel. This was a holy temple, forged in reverence of a deity both worshipped and feared. A ramp descended, spilling ethereal light onto the red terrain. A hushed reverence bound the Mechanicum assemblage. Servo skulls, in their multitudes, hovered their mechanical eyes capturing every moment. A silhouette emerged, radiating power and grandeur. Each step brought with it a cascade of luminous brilliance. 
his formidable presence casting an ever-stretching shadow. His golden armor mirrored the magnificence of the city, its intricate designs hinting at tales untold. Those ageless eyes spoke of wisdom and sorrow so profound that they held an ache of beauty. The Emperor's crimson mantle flowed like liquid fire as he neared the Mechanicum delegation. His gaze, an unfathomable depth, settled upon the most time-worn Paladin Knight. He spoke softly. Your machine spirit suffers. His voice was a symphony, hauntingly captivating. May I? He asked soothingly. No one dared move. The world itself seemed to pause. He extended a hand, caressing the knight. His voice raised. Machine, heal thyself, he commanded. Instantly, the knight rejuvenated, cogs humming with a fervor not felt since its first ignition. The emperor's touch, warm and electrifying, transcended the knight's ceramite, resonating with its pilot. Overwhelmed, the pilot whispered, tears streaming. His voice quivered. Who are you? But deep down, he already knew, though words failed to manifest the realization. Those ageless, impossibly beautiful eyes held the answer. Gently turning to face the gathered masses, he declared loudly, shouting, his voice booming, I am the Emperor. Chapter 1 The Battle for the Soul of Mars in the 31st millennium, on the rust-colored and magma-cursed planet Mars, tensions had always coursed through the veins of the cult of the machine. To outsiders, it was a body united through a rigid religious fervor, but in reality, it was fractured and fragile. Nowhere was bereft of the tension from houses wrestling and scheming for power. From the booming forge cities to the sprawling catacombs below, intricate rivalries and silent wars played out amongst the great houses legions and politicians. Among these were the great forge masters and mistresses. These great powers jealously guarded their proprietary tech knowledge, the heartbeat of Mars's influence in the galaxy. These fragile political ecosystem of the cult relied on a complex interconnecting web of allegiances between the ancient and influential Knight and Titan legions and the sprawling forge masters. Combined, these great legions, houses and masters formed the lifeblood of Mars, and yet amidst this tense web of relationships, there was a figure who stood distinct, adept Corail Zeta of the Magma Forge City, a highly controversial figure in the annals of the Mechanicus. Unlike other prominent houses, Magi, tech priests and forges, she was a vocal non-believer in deities and superstitions. She revered knowledge, echoing the rational secularism of the Emperor, and yet she did not recognize him as a deity figure. She was an apostate in the eyes of many, and yet ironically, a staunch ally of the Imperium, and crucially, the Emperor. She was tolerated, even admired by her peers as mistress to one of the most powerful forge cities to ever exist on Mars, Magma City. And with it, she wielded great influence and powerful allegiances with respected Titan and Knight legions. In the shadowed bowels of her vast forge, Zeta cradled mysteries that bore the weight of either Mars' glorious salvation or its eternal damning downfall. With the dark allure of the warp beckoning, she pirouetted with reckless grace on the razor's edge of blasphemous heresy. Driven by an unyielding purity of purpose, she sought to plunder the arcane depths of the warp, 
aiming to reignite the luminous torch of a bygone technological renaissance that once crowned humanity. But to the stoic gaze of the fabricator general and countless of her peers, her clandestine endeavors and radical beliefs sung a dirge of treachery against the very pillars of Mechanicum faith. Beneath the ancient arches of her forge's sanctum, Zeta stood poised at the precipice of unraveling the eldritch enigma of the warp. The resonance of eons whispered through the catacombs around her, holding secrets that could either uplift or devastate. Yet as her fingers danced over the arcane interfaces, above in the world of burning skies, the very sands were stained with treachery. The red-scarred plains outside her haven bore witness to the undercurrents of civil unrest. A discordant symphony of ambition and betrayal. Unbeknownst to her, the shadow of the Fabricator General of Mars stretched long and dark. His loyalty swayed by the whispered promises of the fallen sun, Horus. And in this age of darkness, Zeta's very quest could become the crucible for her own downfall. The spark that the traitors yearned for to unseat her as the mistress of Magma City. Amidst the star-blanketed tapestry of war and treachery, the betrayal of Fabricator General Hal was not some whimsical act birthed from fleeting emotion or capricious impulse. It was an unraveling, a deep-rooted cancerous seed that had germinated through eons. Even as the magnetic allure of Horus's charisma swayed many, and the tantalizing glimmers of forbidden tech beckoned, the seeds of Hal's sedition had been sown long before. From that pivotal moment when the Emperor, bathed in ethereal light, first set foot upon the rust-red soils of Mars, Hal's cogitations bore an undercurrent of distrust. To him, this Omnissiah was but a false deity, an ephemeral mirage threatening to erode the staunch sovereignty of Mars. Horus, now an avatar of Chaos's malevolent embrace, dangled before Hal the most sacred of the Mechanicum's desires, STC devices. These were archaic wonders, their interiors a labyrinthine treasure trove of marvels that the 31st millennium could scarce fathom. Yet intertwined with the golden promise was a shadowed caveat. Horus had cultivated a brutality, swift and punishing for those who dared defy his zealous mission to cast the Emperor into the abyss of oblivion. Alongside his offering was an unspoken threat, a looming fist to crush any dissent. But Horus had chosen wisely, for in Hal, with his simmering doubts and voracious hunger for knowledge, he found fertile ground. And thus, in treacherous alignment of cosmic wills, Hal succumbed. He not only fell, but in his descent, he dragged the Mechanicum into the maelstrom of civil strife. And Hal, with the precision of a master tactician, recognized that if he were to truly grasp the reins of Mars, he must exploit its underbelly, the creeping tendrils of paranoia, the fractious schisms, and the vast data webs that crisscrossed Mars like an ever-pulsating neural network. The assault upon Mars wasn't heralded by the scream of weaponry or the clash of armies, but by the sinister tendrils of the scrap code, twisting and insidious. It surged like an electronic plague, a tidal wave of corruption through the metallic arteries of the forged cities, turning the very fabric of the Mechanicum's sprawling neural network into a playground for malevolence. It worked its dark magic in silence, its whispers coaxing Magi to raise hand against Brother and Sentinel machines to betray their creators. Every bite dripped with the malevolent touch of chaos, pulling countless souls into Horus's dark embrace, 
as they struggled against the demon within the machine. In those dark hours, many a faithful Mechanicum servant met a brutal end, their own augments betraying them. The electric fire of betrayal surged through their implants, roasting them alive, their screams echoing in the vast chambers of Mars. Yet, from this crucible of madness and torment rose the Dark Mechanicum. Chapter 2 The Last Stand Amidst the chaos, where countless forges crumbled under the siren call of treacherous code, Adept Zeta's Magma City stood defiant, its walls unblemished, its heart still beating. This anomaly, this enigmatic resilience, didn't go unnoticed. It lit the pyres of mistrust, a convenient tool the Fabricator General would wield in a sinister dance of political machination. The malevolence of the scrap code, like a storm ripping through the heart of Mars, became the perfect veil for whispered treacheries. Hushed voices spoke of the Emperor's shadow stretching over Mars, while the Fabricator General's faithful weaved a tapestry of suspicion, leaving the already maimed Mechanicum to tear at its own sinews. Virus bombs, dark codes, and haunting paranoia ignited a fraternal war, legions drawn in a deadly game of loyalty and betrayal. But for Zeta, Conjectures faded to insignificance when the skies of Magma City darkened with the descent of a martial force. 300 Skitari marched in union onto the Magma Forge, grotesque in their war-reforged forms, their once perfectly crafted bodies and weaponry now twisted into instruments of torment. Overshadowing them was the mountainous form of enhanced Skitari protectors their bodies carved into hyper-muscular freaks of nature through gene manipulation and implants. They guarded the messenger of the Fabricator General, who with pomp and gravitas pronounced her a heretic. Zeta's laughter echoed, a defiant challenge, as she gestured to the abominations before her. Once majestic creations, now monstrous effigies of what the Mechanicum could birth. The messenger's voice dropped his threat punctuated by the Skitari aiming their repurposed weapons, each hum and crackle a promise of violence. Yet from behind her shadows cast by towering giants enveloped the courtyard, knights resplendent in their deep blue armor, contrasting the burning heart of the magma lake stepped forth, their weaponry primed and thirsty. An impotent electronic scream from Melgato sought to disable the knights, but Lord Katrurix of the Order of Tarnis had other plans, Allied with the Magma Forge, he had anticipated this game of digital chess. Gazing upon the now outnumbered force before her, Zeth's voice was cold, yet resonant. She gave Melgata a choice, flee her dominion in mere minutes, or embrace oblivion. It was a victory, but with the departure of the warped Skitari, a chilling realization loomed. In the days that would follow, Magma City would stand as the final beacon against the onslaught of the Dark Mechanicum. It would be their last stand, and with it, any hope of a Mars that stood with the Emperor. At the very precipice of her vast forge's bulwarks, the final vestiges of the Loyalist Mechanicum stood defiantly. A scant cadre of majestic titans and stalwart knights, ancient sentinels of a bygone era, each one irreplaceable. They represented an edifice of strategic brilliance, forging tactics that promised to drown the Dark Mechanicum in their own blood and oil. Yet the dire hand of destiny had cast its shadow the instant Horus, the betrayer, 
set his gaze upon the red jewel of the solar system. The indomitable legions of titans and knights were brought low as they waged cataclysmic warfare upon their kin. Despite their battle tactics and indomitable spirit, the loyalists would fall to the staggering numbers of the traitors. As the twilight of their final hour drew near, adept Zeta, resolute and cloaked in tenacity, would not capitulate. Chaos would never corrupt the sanctity of her forge, nor would they touch the arcane apparatus she'd meticulously crafted to peer into the very maw of the warp. Gravely wounded, her life force ebbing away, she unleashed the final code. Molten fury surged, consuming the heart of the forge, while cataclysmic detonations obliterated both loyalist and heretic in a blinding sacrificial finale. Their stand, fervent and unyielding, would echo for eternity in the annals of the Imperium. Chapter 3 Dangerous Games Clade and his Raven Guard brothers moved like shadows through the nest, passing through twisted alien Acrictocutra, comprised of twitching, stabbing legs and shell-armored brains. But today, the shadows betrayed them. The silence of the night was shattered. The swarm came to life as if one organism working in unison. Metal clashed with ancient armored plate, bolted rounds tearing flesh and bone through shilled screams. But they kept coming. Chainsaws sparked to life and tore through limbs, as immature Xeno scum clawed its way up their ceramite armor, tearing and biting at the flesh and armor. A blinding light of pain stabbed through his mind before his Astartes implants could shut the pain down. He looked down, his leg was gone. He screamed in pain as he watched his arm being devoured. Clade awoke, gasping. It was the same nightmare, one that continued to haunt his dreams, despite thirty years passing since those terrible events. He glanced down, his limbs had been replaced by Mechanicum augments. Mars had not only bestowed upon him state-of-the-art bionics, but also an identity, the Carrion. No longer just a soldier, but a bridge between the Astartes and the mysterious tech priests of Mars. He was a tech marine initiate. Now more bionics than flesh, it had taken him decades to accept the fate thrust upon him. But he would not, and could not break free from the shackles of his past life. He was a raven guard, even if his brethren did not see him as such. They would consider him disabled, less than. The Emperor had made the Astartes perfect warriors. The Carrion was a broken porcelain doll bolted together with iron and steel. This was his fate. As he neared the completion of his training as a Tech Marine Initiate, he would bear witness to the Mechanicum's judicial system. A Tech Priest, who dared to defy the holy tenets of the Machine Cult, was paraded before him. Shackled and blinded, he was brought forward before the court to receive his sentencing. His implants had been violently removed, leaving him broken, weak and vulnerable. And yet, a fire burned within him. Despite his impending doom, he continued to rave and scream about a godlike, sentient AI that would cleanse the galaxy of all humanity. Aid's madness on display, his sentencing was without mercy. Even as the stasis fields flashed him into petrification, he would continue to scream in hysteria, his twisted, crazed face forever frozen in an agonized expression. His body would serve as a warning to all those that would defy the tenets and chose heresy. And yet, unknown to the Carrion, 
In the days to come, this tale of heresy would serve as the foundation for a daring plan to take back Mars. In his last days on Mars, on the cusp of graduation, he stood with his fellow initiates in the highest floor in the great temple they had come to call home. However, an air of uncertainty hung in the Martian red air. Something was not right. They were hearing talk over the data stream of corrupted code, cult faction disruption, compromised networks, strange orbital patterns, augmented infantry moving in strange formations and mobilizing in unusually large movements. There was even talk of entire Titan legions on the move between forged temples. It was unthinkable that a Xenos threat would have penetrated this far into the solar system. Some suggested a temple or forge dispute, or perhaps feral servitor uprising, but none of it felt right. The haunting cry of orbital alarms echoed the dread they'd been feeling deep in their souls. Mars, the red jewel of the cosmos, was plunged into the fires of war, and they found themselves ensnared in its deadly heart. Scant moments were given to hasty stratagems or desperate battle plans, for soon enough, the darkened sky was pierced by the looming silhouettes of Mechanicum carriers. From their cavernous bellies fell the grotesque and twisted forms of dark Mechanicum Skitarii, their sole directive clear and unsympathetic, to extinguish the light of the Tech Marines and cleanse the planet of any lingering loyalty. Besieged and outgunned, the Tech Priests found themselves caught in a crucible. Their arsenals were dwindling, ammunition scarce. Yet in this hour of darkness, their conviction remained unbroken. They became the very instruments of defiance, their camaraderie a shield against the tide of malice. The temple's towering structure resonated with the cacophony of combat as the Skitari warriors, their intentions murderous, inexorably advanced. But then, a deeper, more guttural tremor rumbled beneath them, the bone-jarring footfalls of the Legion Mortis Titans, Sworn to the blasphemous Dark Mechanicum, they were harbingers of obliteration, intent on sundering all that stood before them. For the carrion trapped within, aspirations of victory became faint, distant echoes. One imperative now remained, survive and bear warning to terror. But as hope flickered, a new horror was unleashed. Waves of insidious scrap code washed over the Tech Marines, their cerebral circuits short-circuiting, Overwhelmed, their eyes ablaze with confused anguish, they faltered, collapsing under the weight of electronic torment. As blood and sacred oils mixed, each Astartes, in a frantic blend of desperation and agony, clawed at the junctures where man merged with machine, trying to rip away the source of their suffering. In the dim, echoing chasm of a cavernous hangar, carved from the heart of a Mechanicum fortress, and now repurposed as a sanctified repair bay for the great war machines, the endgame unfolded. The Skitari, chosen protectors of the machine god, marched in. Their gilded ceremonial mail shimmered in the subdued lighting, contrasting starkly with the visceral crimson of their garb. A grotesque harmony of melted flesh and techno-heresy adorned their visages. Skeletal remains intermeshed with advanced targeting matrices, turning them into avatars of death. In their hands, they brandished weapons of such terrifying design, devices that agitated the very essence of hydrogen to birth unimaginable heat and death. To face such a weapon was to witness annihilation incarnate, 
Metal seared and organic matter vaporized as radiation poured forth in an unending tide and the unspeakable luminosity threatened to consume all. The hangar became a theater of the damned. From this cauldron of obliteration, only the carrion emerged, a lone survivor of the massacre, his path leading inexorably to the heart of the Imperium, to terror. Yet the annals of history are often frayed, their threads lost in the tapestry of time. The intricate weavings of Carrion's escape, his trials and tribulations as he journeyed to terror, are stories that remain shrouded in obscurity, waiting for a voice to bring them to light. In the shadowed gardens of the Imperial Palace on Terror, three monumental figures convened. Newly elevated Fabricator General Sangrius Kane, trusted advisor Malkador the Sigilite, and Primarch and Protectorate of the Emperor's Palace, Rogal Dawn. Together they would deliberate the fate of Mars. Amidst their discourse, the gilded Legio Custodes patrolled with an omnipotent presence, shields and armor gleaming like burnished gold beneath Terra's sun. And throughout the palace, Astartes Legion, the Imperial Fists, and a throng of indentured servants under the banner of Dawn, readied the defenses. The very air was thick with anticipation. A cosmic storm was about to be unleashed upon the soul system. Rogal Dawn towered over them all, a living monument of determination, his golden armor offset by a blood-red cloak. His stark white hair contrasted against the weight of his gaze, a reflection of battles fought and yet to come. Sangrius, now leader of the Mechanicum Loyalists, was an amalgamation of flesh and steel, his threads of red and gold interspersed with intricate machinery. Robed and hooded, his green optic gaze emitted an otherworldly glow. Kane's synthetic voice resonated with a hint of desperation. Why was Mars abandoned to the enemy? Dawn's voice, deep and rumbling, responded, The universe trembles, Kane. An all-consuming war unlike anything ever witnessed is on the horizon. Horus and his damned legions will challenge every bastion of our empire, and every one of my imperial fists will be required at the palace walls. Mars, for all its glory, is just one forge amongst the vast expanse. Kane's optics flared. What of my people? They gave their lives, Dawn replied, a somber undertone evident. So their creations could empower those destined to exact vengeance, those like us who will make Horus and his heretics pay the price for Mars' desolation. Cain, persistent, pressed on. Then should we not reclaim Mars? No, Dawn's voice carried an edge. Mars for now is beyond our reach. I've heard whispers of resistance from Malkador, but evidence is scant. Mars has been consumed. Our gaze must shift to darker, more desperate strategies. The atmosphere darkened as the word spilled from Dawn's mouth. The word that would send bolts of electricity through Kane's body. Exterminatus! The Fabricator General's voice, deep and metallic, resonated throughout the chamber. Have you lost all reason? To contemplate the obliteration of Mars, our sacred forge world, is to forsake the future of the Astartes. Do you not see? The very core of our technological marvels, the secrets whispered down through millennia, all to be lost in a haze of fire and orbital rage but Dawn would not be moved. Envision the malevolence of Horus and his traitorous legions casting their shadow upon Mars. That general is a reality I refuse to let come to pass. The general's synthetic heart thudded. To bombard Mars from the cosmos, to raise it to the ground, 
You threaten not just a planet, but an epoch of our history. Mars and Terra have stood side by side since the dawn of time. Can you fathom the abyss of knowledge we would plunge into? The very fabric of the Imperium would be torn asunder. It would be as if you willingly ushered in another age of strife. But beyond that was a greater fear. Destroying Mars would not only sow despair, but fan the flames of rebellion. He continued, how do the distant Forge worlds know they won't suffer the same fate? Do you wish to prove Horus's whispered truths? That we are the true traitors? Malkador, demonstrating his wit and supernatural ability for tactical brilliance, used his words to punch through the building tension. Perhaps, he began with a sly smile, there exists another path. He signaled, and Carrion stepped forward, his fate sealed as a pawn in Malkador's grand game for the salvation or damnation of the Imperium. History suggests that the plan formed on that day was never intended to save Mars. Evidence of its obvious failure was scattered in its inception. What Malkador and Dawn had intended is one of speculation, and in these tales, it seems evident that Dawn always intended to liberate Mars from the forces of Horus. Was it all a game? A show for the newly appointed fabricator? This information is lost to the sands of time. The plan was reckless, bold and ultimately doomed. The Carrion would breach Mars using the stealth and cunning of his Raven Guard lineage, free the traitor priest from the frozen state the Carrion had witnessed him condemned to, and together, they would locate the heretical AI device buried deep within the vaults of Mars. With it, they would disrupt the workings of ancient temple forges built upon the poles of Mars, shutting down their life-preserving artificial magnetic shielding which protected Mars from the harsh radiation of the sun, and plunged Mars into an inhospitable barren world once more. The fabricator shivered with dread. Visions of Mars, stripped of its vital anima and overtaken by rogue AI, dark echoes of humanity's hubris, plagued him. Malkador the Sigilite, his voice dripping with gravitas, laid out the fateful paths before the fabricator. Mars stands at the crossroads, we obliterate its legacy and treasures. We let the insidious corruption of Horus envelop it whole, or we purge the malignancy within, restoring its sacred sovereignty. Dawn, eyes burning with righteous fury, thundered his decree. Purge the unclean. Steeped in the whispers of history, the tales of this cataclysm were suffused in shadows hinting at the calamitous failure that had befallen. Every soul, every vessel, the entirety of their ambition vanished into oblivion. When fate convened the trio again, a profound alteration tugged at Dawn's soul. Was it the valorous metal of the loyalists, their individual sagas minute as grains but collectively a formidable burden? Could it be the looming threat of insurrection from the other Forge worlds? Or the restless murmurs of the Martians on Terra? Or perhaps, an even darker query wormed its way into his thoughts. If they were to unleash the apocalyptic wrath of Exterminatus upon Mars, would they merely play into the very narrative Horus wove? That the God Emperor, in his grand machination, harbored ambitions to cripple Mars and claim its majesty? While the heart of this enigma remains shrouded, one truth emerged with crystalline clarity. Rogel Dawn, echoing the steps of his divine progenitor, would reclaim the Sanguine Gem.
Chapter 4 The Binary Succession On a clear winter night on terror, the tech priests stood amongst the palace gardens, peering at the inky black sky. Where once had been eyes, was now replaced with enhanced optics. They could see what most others could not, the red-scarred jewel they had once called home, Mars. Even those who'd sacrificed chunks of their humanity, replacing raw emotion with steel and circuitry, felt a spiritual agony, a gnawing void where once dwelt the pride of the red planet. The intricate cogs and gears, once symbols of mechanical purity, now throbbed with an existential lament. Amidst the vast industrial cathedrals of Mars, remnants of the Omniscia's disciples debated its fate. Unity, a distant memory, was splintered into fractious shards, each faction driven by its own beliefs about sovereignty, the sanctity of the spirit, and the relentless pursuit of arcane knowledge. Cabal Hal of the binary succession, cloaked in treachery yet holding the title of Fabricator General, was an anathema. His recognized counterpart, the legitimate yet exiled steward of terror, had left Mars a soul adrift in torment. The mantle resting on Kane's shoulders was fragile, a thin veneer of control over an untenable situation. If the binary succession schism persisted, chaos would weave its tendrils into the sacred code, sparking a cataclysm that threatened to engulf all. The once human silhouette of the Fabricator General had long been consumed, now replaced by a hunched monstrosity of cold, unyielding machinery. His tank-like chassis was a grim testament to the schism, the diminishing of flesh over unforgiving metal, echoing the fractured souls of the Mechanicum. Everywhere from the remote fringes to the very heart of terror, the divisive rift among the tech priests festered, an unbalanced equation desperately seeking resolution. In this fragile balance, where allies could so easily become enemies, it took but a whisper. Treating them as the villains that the shadowed whispers claimed they were, their bubbling cauldron of frustration, desperation and palpable fear became fertile ground, and from such festering soil the creeping tendrils of chaos found eager purchase. Vetheril, the appointed ambassador tech priestess, had become Cain's resonant voice, urging a radical notion that had stirred even the most monolithic of minds. To ascend to the status of Adeptus Mechanicus, and more brazenly, to approach the high and mighty Lords of Terror with this audacious aspiration. This political move was not met with the collective agreement of what remained of the cult of Mars. The vast ground of the palace pulsated with tension and deceit. Sabotage and shadows lurked in every corner as assassination attempts sought to silence her, but she endured. Yet when her words met the ears of the council, they seemed to wither and die, strangled by bureaucracy, and the Lord's fear of a Mechanicum ascending. As Vetheril stood before the vaunted High Lords of Terror, her voice resonant with determination, she reminded them of an undeniable truth. Whether Mars was enfolded into the Imperium's embrace, or left to the rapacious hunger of Horus, retaliation would be inevitable. Legions would rise from every conceivable corner of the galaxy, rallying to the defense of the cult's heart. It would serve the Lord's well, she mused, to find themselves aligned with the Omnissiah. However, as negotiations progressed, the rot at the core of Terra's bureaucracy became painstakingly evident. The theatrics were endless. High Lords postured with exaggerated indignation, their council chambers filled with the stench of feigned outrage, 
bellicose rhetoric, and shadows of imagined coups. When the protracted talks seemed to reach their inevitable climax, the Council's obstinacy cast Mars to the wolves, delivering them to the impending onslaught of Horus, and decreeing their forces subsumed under Imperial Dominion. The once-esteemed treaty lay in tatters, the mighty Titans now forced to march under the Imperium's banner. But Vetheril and Cain, undeterred and with fire in their souls, made their defiant stand. With a gambit that teetered on the edge of heresy and revolution, they laid down their ultimatum. The invaluable Titan legions would withdraw from the Solar War, retreating to the sanctuary of their Forge worlds. If the High Lords turned blind eyes to reason, they would be confronted with an irrefutable logic of force. The era of the binary succession had to conclude. The cult of Mars demanded recognition, and its leadership, a formal enthronement. There was a palpable pause, then the faint distant wail of a siren growing louder, more menacing. The colossal Emperor Titan echoed its warning. Dust and age-old secrets fell from the vaulted ceilings as the earth shook beneath its weight within the great palace walls. Every thunderous step resonated like a drumbeat of doom, ratcheting the tension in the chamber to a nearly unbearable pitch. We stand at a precipice, she continued. The binary must end. Mars demands its place, its recognition, legitimize our cult, formalize our leadership. The final cry of the Imperator Titan tore through the hall, silencing all. Panic gripped the council. The might of Mars was laid bare, a demonstration of the cataclysm they wielded. In the binary world, Vetherell's voice pierced the dread. It's zero or one. The Adeptus Mechanicus is that singular solution, and with a final seismic step of the Titan, the Council yielded. Thus, from tumultuous beginnings, the Adeptus Mechanicus emerged. Their voice would echo in the chambers of power, with Cain anointed a High Lord. Sacrifices were made, alliances reforged, but as Cain proclaimed, the Adeptus has risen, and we will endure. From this sacrifice of autonomy, a permanent foundation is laid. Before we finish this Tales from the Warp, please consider joining our Patreon and receive your monthly gifts. From artwork to full illustrated lore guides, every tier shall receive. Tales from the Warp will be patron-supported. If you like these tales, consider checking out the Audible books linked below. Cybernetica, Mechanicum, and the Binary Succession. Let us now venture forth into the closing chapter. Chapter 5 Fallen, but not forsaken. The golden bulwark against this encroaching night of Horus was Primarch Dawn and his stoic imperial fists. Time, ever so fleeting, was against them. With each ticking second, Horus's grand design was unfolding, rendering reinforcements sparse. Yet Dawn, ever resolute, descended upon Mars, his fists clenched to deliver a crushing blow to the rebels. The red sand was soon soaked with the blood of loyalists and traitors alike. Yet as tides turned with the arrival of more dark Mechanicum reinforcements, the dire decision to withdraw became inevitable. Mars, although fallen, was not forsaken. Dawn's forces took to the stars, holding them as guardians, preventing the traitor Mechanicum from complete domination. But this celestial blockade, overseen by Camba Diaz, was about to be tested as never before. 
The ominous shadow of the traitor fleet cast a pall over Mars. The skies witnessed the combined might of treachery, over 10,000 vessels if the sons of Horus. Word bearers, the Thousand Sons and Dark Mechanicum, led by the imposing vengeful spirit with Horus himself at its helm. But the horrors did not end there. Millions of winged demons followed, ushered in by a ritual conducted by the word bearers on a distant comet, further ripping the fabric of reality and spewing chaos onto Luna and Mars. As this cosmic ballet of destruction ensued, news of doom spread like a dark shroud. Jupiter had fallen under the shadow of Perturabo. On Mars, the last bastion of resistance, Cambadias, retreated with precious few units that remain. The Red Planet was left at the mercy of the Dark Mechanicum, and in a symbolic gesture, Adept Sotanul of the Dark Mechanicum bent his knee before the Fabricator General Kelbor Hal. Across the solar system, hope waned as the Heralds of Chaos carved their paths of devastation. Yet, in this darkest of hours, the true metal of heroes was to be tested. To be continued. In a galaxy steeped in darkness, where existence is a mere flicker against the ever-consuming void, hope is a currency few can afford. Amidst these countless souls, bound to the grind of labor or the chains of conscription, most will be destined for the meat grinder of war. However, across the countless planets, whispers of the Astartes pierce the gloom. The very mention of these superhuman warriors brings a momentary solace. Their deeds, executed in the Emperor's name, are steeped in mystery and offer, but the glimpses of salvation from a life of torment. Some recount stories of being lifted from the muck and blood, to be destined for greatness and join the ranks of these angels of death. Yet beyond the stories, deeper in the shadows, lies a truth that challenges belief. A clandestine order, unrivaled and unseen. Few ever come to know of their existence, and those who do face a stark reality, annihilation, or a complete mind wipe. Their operations are so shrouded in secrecy that entire civilizations risk obliteration merely by stumbling upon their existence. These silver angels are barely a whisper, a myth. They are the Grey Knights, the demon hunters of the Imperium. Amidst the raging storm of the Horus Heresy, the very heartbeats of the solar system were under threat. Mars, Luna, and Terra itself. Malkador the Sigilite, psychic linchpin and right hand to the Emperor, plotted with cold precision. Chaos, having twisted half of the Emperor's chosen into traitorous marauders, carved swathes of destruction across the cosmos. Billions had been extinguished, and countless worlds lay in smoldering ruin. Every tactical advantage seemed to be with the traitors. The Loyalists, those still resolute in their devotion, found themselves desperately holding the line, their backs against the crumbling bulwarks of Terra, Luna and Mars. But even as battle raged, Malkador's thoughts cut through the chaos of war. He foresaw a shattered Imperium, forever stalked by the shadow of corruption. For this relentless, bleak future, he envisioned a force, a blade loyal only to the Emperor, untouched and untemptable by the dark allure of chaos. In the crucible of war, 
Malkador's vision crystallized into six non-negotiable tenets. First, these warriors would remain shadows, unknown to Horus and his chaotic horde, until the storm of war passed. Only then could they rise, unscathed to shape the new era. Second, bureaucracy and oversight would be chains they'd never bear. They'd operate beyond the usual channels, answering to none but their own order. Not a cog in the war machine, but a blade held directly in the Emperor's hand. Third, their loyalty would be undivided, to the Emperor and only him. Primarchs with their vulnerabilities wouldn't sway these warriors. Their devotion would be an armor against the seductions of chaos. Fourth, purity of purpose and spirit would be their essence. Absolute in secrecy, their very existence would be protected with a ferocity that rivaled the Emperor's wrath. Any risk to their covert nature would be snuffed out with extreme prejudice. To the universe, they'd be less than whispers. Myths, nothing more. Fifth, they'd have to tread where even the Emperor once hesitated to lead his Astartes warriors. Psychic might, a force both revered and feared, would be their arsenal against chaos. Six, to seal their unmatched strength, they would be granted the ultimate gift, the Emperor's very own gene seed. With a plan as meticulous as it was audacious, Malkador turned his gaze to Titan. On this moon, he would lay the foundations of a clandestine Astartes chapter, an edifice of might and purpose. Rising from its surface would be a formidable monastery, its halls thrumming with the relentless labor of servitors and echoing with the aspirations of 100,000 souls awaiting their trials. Malkador's prodigious psychic might would veil this sanctuary, rendering it invisible to prying eyes and ambitious foes. But constructing the fortress was just the beginning. The true challenge lay ahead. The search for the Founding Fathers, the Revered Seven. These Chosen Ones would not only define the Grey Knight's legacy and essence, but also set them on a path carved by fate itself, a destiny grander and graver than any could imagine. To bring this monumental vision to fruition, Malkador first instituted the Ordo Sigilite, an entity removed from the Imperium's labyrinthine bureaucracy. From its shadowed corridors, a more formidable organization would emerge, the Inquisition. These relentless agents, bound by no law but their mission, would delve into the darkest recesses of the galaxy, seeking out and obliterating sources of chaos and corruption wherever they lurked. From the militant heart of the Inquisition would rise the Demon Hunters, the Grey Knights. Their mandate was as clear as it was perilous, to eradicate demonic presences from the material plane and cleanse any that bore even the slightest mark of corruption. But for such a sacred mission, Malkador needed a leader of unparalleled resolve. His gaze settled on Captain Nathaniel Garrow of the now-tainted Death Guard. Garrow languished in a cell on Luna, Despite his storied heroism, he, like all survivors, was a question mark in a galaxy where trust had become a luxury. The pervasive, insidious threat of chaos ensured that even the most honorable could be doubted. Malkador released Garrow from his shackles, his chains now bound to the bulwark against the forces of chaos. Garrow, entrusted with a mission of profound significance, set out to seek seven Astartes whose fidelity to the Emperor was unyielding. One name rose to prominence, Rubio. A potent psyker amongst the Ultramarines, Rubio had for the longest time suppressed his psychic might, adhering to the Emperor's decree. The Ultramarines, unwavering in their loyalty to the Emperor's teachings, 
demanded nothing short of unyielding obedience. Like all Astartes, Rubio's bond with his brothers was ironclad, a connection that ran deeper than doctrine or dogma. He had chosen to keep his psychic powers ensconced in shadow, even if it meant walking a tighter rope amongst his kin. But in a desperate hour when his brothers teetered on the brink of annihilation, Rubio unleashed the full brunt of his psychic might, a maelstrom that obliterated their adversaries and saved his unit. Yet his act of salvation was viewed through the lens of betrayal. The Ultramarines, staunch in their principles, saw his psychic display as a violation of both their code and the Emperor's edict. Cast adrift, with the weight of exile upon him, Rubio found himself at a crossroads. But in that solitude, a new path emerged, as Garo, recognizing Rubio's potential and the strength of his conviction, extended an invitation to join an endeavor greater than any legion. Of the remaining cadre, most would be shrouded in mystery, their identities concealed or forgotten by the annals of time. Only one would etch his name in the chronicles of the Imperium, Garviel Loken, former captain of the Lunar Wolves, later known as the Sons of Horus, and once a confidant to the very heart of betrayal Horus himself. To welcome such a figure into the fold was a gamble of monumental stakes, but Loken's actions, as history would bear witness, wouldn't just justify his inclusion. They would crystallize the core tenets of this new order. His deeds, both audacious and honorable, would become emblematic of their very essence, a testament to the indomitable spirit the Grey Knights embodied. It was on the scarred and scorched surface of Istvan that Loken would bear witness to an act of incomprehensible betrayal. The planet became a charnel house, subjected to a virus bombardment that decimated entire Astartes legions. The very earth heaved and split, offering sanctuary to a scant few. Amongst those who sought refuge in its dark embrace was Garviel Loken, for readers versed in prior chronicles to which the tale below refers. Loken's intricate dance with Horus is no mystery. As a stalwart captain, his loyalty lay not to the man, but the grand design of the Emperor. In an era when Horus grappled with the weight of being Warmaster, Loken was both a trusted counsel and a fearsome warrior. Yet, as the shadow of corruption spread its tendrils, he bore witness to his legion's descent into heresy, contradicting the Emperor's sacrosanct tenets. Even as Horus succumbed to the insidious whispers of chaos, Loken remained resolute. A beacon of loyalty amidst treachery, he clashed with those he once called brothers. Yet even the most steadfast of warriors can be broken. After the unspeakable events on Istvan, Loken found himself entombed deep within the planet's bowels. Time lost meaning in that lightless abyss. Days became years, and the isolation chipped away at the once indomitable spirit of the Astartes. His psyche fragmented, teetering between sanity and madness. Memories became elusive, identity blurred, survival instincts took over, transmuting Loken into something primeval. He became Cerberus, a sentinel of the underworld more beast than man. In this desolation, the concept of loyalty, of the Emperor of Horus became distant echoes. Only the primal urge to endure remained. Even shattered and reborn as Cerberus, the essence of Loken beckoned Garrow. Upon their encounter, a battle of both blade and will ensued. Garrow, with unwavering determination, sought to pierce the beastly facade, to reach the Astartes buried deep within. But such an effort was only the beginning. 
The dread that Loken might be a sleeper agent of Horus, strategically abandoned on Istvan III, gripped the hearts of those who discovered him. To mitigate the risk, Loken was subjected to an ordeal that would break lesser beings. Through chilling interrogations and tortures, his loyalty was tested and retested. Each scar inflicted upon him, each scream torn from his throat, became a testament to his devotion. Yet the shadow of doubt persisted, and would do so until Loken's ultimate act of sacrifice. The blueprint of Loken's torment would later inspire the trials that every Grey Knight aspirant would undergo. In those trying times, amidst the cacophony of his fractured psyche, Loken found solace in an abandoned garden on Luna. There, amongst the silent blooms and whispering winds, fragments of his identity began to mend, and while the scars of his mind remained, his loyalty was unwavering. When the call to arms resonated once more, Loken answered. He led a perilous assault on Horus's flagship, the Vengeful Spirit, a mission mired in the anticipation of failure and likely death. In the climactic confrontation with Horus, the Warmaster, ever the Manipulator, offered Loken a seat by his side under the banner of Chaos. But Loken, though outmatched, became the bulwark that shielded his comrades. In his final defiant stand against the overwhelming might of a Primarch, he traded his life for the precious moments that allowed his brothers to retreat. Whispers of Loken's sacrifice reverberated throughout the hallowed halls of the Grey Knights. It was a poignant reminder. Only when faced with the Abyss, does one truly understand the depths of their loyalty. From the ashes of Loken's fiery resolve, the legacy of the Grey Knights was forged. Like tempered steel they emerged, unyielding, steadfast, and with an undying loyalty that would become legendary. The Imperium's stalwart shield against the nightmarish tide of chaos, Loken's harrowing odyssey became the crucible from which the Grey Knights were molded. Each trial he endured, every painful metamorphosis, served as a grim template for their own initiation. His fragmented psyche, his journey of rediscovery, and his ultimate resilience in the face of overwhelming odds were echoed in the rites and rigors each knight would undergo. The path of a Grey Knight is not simply one of martial prowess, but a gauntlet of the mind and spirit. For to face the very essence of chaos, they must first confront their own inner demons, shatter their sense of self, and be reforged in the crucible of adversity. Only then, tempered and true, can they stand as the Imperium's final line of defense. Thus the Grey Knights stand, not as mere warriors, but as sentinels of the soul, an unbreakable testament to the indomitable will of the Emperor's chosen. Titan, a moon of Saturn, harbored a secret of monumental significance. A clandestine monastery fortress, standing silent and foreboding, awaited its destined inhabitants. Within, halls bustled not with the noise of life, but with the silent hum of machinery and the muted whispers of half-lives. Aspirants were ushered in, each bearing the spark of psychic potential, each marked for trials most would not withstand. But Titan's shadowed chambers also held the husks of those who broke under the weight of their testing, minds once vibrant, now hollowed out, reconstituted into servitors, Tragic reminders of the price of imperfection in the relentless war against chaos. The hunt for aspirants knew no bounds. Worlds near and far were scoured. And even the sacred recruiting grounds of other Astartes chapters were not immune to the Grey Knight's unyielding search. Such was their desperation. 
for these psychic talents were rarer than the purest gold. The toll of becoming a Grey Knight was unparalleled. It was said that for every thousand who tried, only one would see their metamorphosis to completion. And even then, survival was a term used loosely. For the chosen few, they weren't merely surviving. They were reborn, transformed into something more than human, yet burdened with a purpose so grave, it threatened to crush even their augmented spirits. The Grey Knights were few, but their worth was beyond measure, for they were the last bulwark against the Abyss. The shadow of Horus's treachery loomed large over the Soul System, a storm cloud ready to unleash its fury. As the impending doom grew closer, Malkador, the Emperor's most trusted advisor, hatched a desperate gambit. With a force of will that threatened to tear his mind asunder, he weaved an intricate psychic shroud around Titan. The moon, and all its secrets, vanished from reality and into a hidden fold of the warp. A liminal space, unfathomable to even the most enlightened scholars, where time flowed like a capricious river, winding and unwinding upon itself. Yet for all his power, Malkador was not destined to find sanctuary on Titan. His path lay elsewhere. The Sigilite would remain on terror, standing resolute by the side of his Emperor. For in the dark hours ahead, he would make the ultimate sacrifice, laying down his very life in service to the Imperium he so loved. A final act of loyalty, as poignant as it was tragic. The weight of a galaxy's fate rested heavily on Malkador's shoulders, and he bore it with a grace and determination that would echo through the annals of history. The pilgrimage to the monastery was a march into despair. Titan's frigid embrace was a suffocating grip. Here, amongst its bleak horizons and howling winds, the aspirants were deposited, abandoned. No shelter, no guidance, just the stark, endless expanse of a moon that cared nothing for their ambition or resolve. Yet as merciless as Titan was, it was not the treacherous environment that broke the aspirants. It was the silence, the vast, echoing stillness that gnawed at the edges of their sanity. Every step an exercise in doubt. Was there truly a sanctuary in this desolation? Or was this some cruel jest? Hope seemed to vanish, replaced by a bitter realization. This wasn't merely a test of physical endurance. It was a crucible of the soul. Scattered across the icy plains, mounds of snow would shift and billow in the winds. Beneath them lay the dreams of aspirants who had succumbed. Unseen, unheard, they became a silent testament to the heavy toll of the path to the Grey Knights. Yet for those who survived this initial trial, the true journey had only just begun. Their will was forged in the crucible of Titans in hospitality, their metal tested in the unforgiving silence of its wilderness. But the monastery's doors would only open for those truly destined to don the sacred armor of the Grey Knights. And for those who prevail, even Titan's vast desolation becomes an echoing testament to their unwavering resolve. It is said that the mind, when pushed beyond its breaking point, either shatters completely or rebuilds itself with a strength hitherto unknown. On Titan, many shattered. The vast expanse became a graveyard for dreams and aspirations, marked only by trails of footprints that ended abruptly and the macabre sight of the headless fallen. The psychic inhibitors were a cruel but necessary instrument, ensuring that the unchecked psychic powers of a faltering aspirant would not wreak havoc. 
For many, the hardest part wasn't the biting cold or the gnawing hunger. It was the uncertainty, the relentless repetition, never knowing if this trek might be the last or if another awaited just around the corner. Some began to question their reality, whispering to themselves about the possibility of an unending loop, where each journey was just a cruel echo of the last. But those few who held on, who bested their own despair and harnessed the tempest of their psychic energies, even amidst the onslaught of Titan's icy moor, would come to embody the essence of what the Grey Knight stood for. Their minds, having been torn down and stripped to their rawest, most primal form, would be reforged in the crucible of suffering, emerging not just as psychic warriors, but as bastions of mental fortitude. These were the ones who understood, in the most visceral way possible, that the true battle wasn't against the elements or the icy expanse of Titan. It was a battle within, a trial of their very souls. The Grey Knights did not merely seek psychic might. They sought warriors who could anchor that might with an indomitable spirit. Only those who had walked the desolate paths of Titan time and time again, and emerged not just alive but unyielding, would be worthy to bear the heraldry of the Grey Knights. For within each Grey Knight, the Emperor's divine protection intermingles with the indomitable spirit of their rigorous training. Their minds, while powerful, are bound by unyielding mental chains, forged in the fires of their torturous trials on Titan. It is not merely their weapons and armaments that serve as a bulwark against the incursions of the warp, but their very souls. Every chant, every prayer, every gesture they make is a testament to the relentless discipline they embody. These purity wards, embossed upon their very essence, serve a dual function. Not only do they shield these warriors from the ever-lurking tendrils of chaos, but they also act as conduits, focusing their raw psychic might. The silver threads woven into their bodies aren't just mere symbols of purity, but are the nexus of their anti-demonic potency. When a Grey Knight faces a demon, it's not merely a clash of physical might, but a battle of ideologies, a collision of purity against corruption, order against anarchy. While other Astartes may hold fast against Xenos or heretical threats, the Grey Knights are the Imperium's only answer to the demonic. No other force in the galaxy can stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the ruinous powers of the Warp, in quite the same way. Their weapons, charged with their unyielding faith and psychic might, can rend the very essence of these otherworldly adversaries. A standard chainsword may falter against the ethereal constitution of a demon, but a Grey Knight's blade, backed by their fierce conviction and spiritual wards, pierces through to the very soul of the foe. This unique blend of faith, purity, and martial prowess does not just make them the ultimate demon hunters, but also symbols. Wherever they tread, they stand as pillars of hope against the encroaching darkness, their mere presence a testament to the Emperor's undying will to safeguard humanity. Every foe that falls beneath their blade is not just a victory for the Imperium, but a reaffirmation of mankind's resilience in the face of unfathomable horrors. In the hallowed depths of Titan, after enduring the relentless crucible of 666 rites, the aspirant faces his most harrowing ordeal. It's not merely a test but an annihilation, an exacting invasive purge that scours clean the very essence of one's being, memories, fears, ambitions. The cleansing is absolute. There remains no past to haunt, no ambition to be exploited, no fragile memories of childhood to sow confusion, and certainly no kin to be turned against them. 
After the tragedy of Horus, betrayed by the insidious whispers of chaos that preyed upon his deepest insecurities, there could be no compromise. Those who would stand against the demonic tide could afford no vulnerability. These warriors, these Grey Knights, are not just soldiers. They are the Emperor's very blade, honed to perfection. For them, glory is a distant spectre. Only duty remains. Such is their resilience and prowess, that even the newest among them is granted the honor of a full power suit, skipping the traditional scouting phase. For this rare breed of Astartes has already proven, against insurmountable odds, their worthiness to stand shoulder to shoulder with their battle brothers in the eternal war against the Dark Gods. Amidst the turbulent currents of the warp, Titan re-entered reality with an otherworldly grace. Its reappearance was marked by the shimmering curtain of energy fading from around the moon, revealing its surface once more. The distortion of time within the warp left a chasm between Titan's reality and the galaxies. Decades had passed in the merest of moments, and now Titan emerged with its phalanx of champions, those that remained of the aspirants, ready to act as the new vanguard against the seeping corruption of chaos. Their armor gleamed with a stark purity that contrasted with the dark and tumultuous times. They were no mere soldiers. They were the living embodiment of the Emperor's wrath against the twisted malevolence of the warp. Operating in tandem with the fledgling Inquisition, these knights were the bulwark against the shadows. Their psychic abilities were unparalleled, a beacon of hope in the mind's battlefield. Each gaze they cast into the warp was done with precision, their souls shielded from the corruption that sought to ensnare lesser beings. Their modus operandi was shadow and silence. When the hellscape of chaos threatened to engulf a world, they emerged from the void. Their battles fought with such rapidity and secrecy that they became legends, phantoms whispered about in the dark. To the wider Imperium, their existence was the stuff of myths, tales told to comfort the fearful, yet too incredible to be believed. The few Astartes from other chapters who encountered these ghostly warriors and lived would find their memories blurred, their experiences clouded. Only a select few, those deemed trustworthy enough, were permitted the weighty honor of retaining knowledge of the Grey Knights. To the masses, they were an unsung enigma, their battles unknown, their sacrifices unseen, and their legacy a silent promise. Wherever darkness tread, they would be its reckoning. Before we finish this Tales from the Warp, please consider joining our Patreon and receive your monthly gifts. From artwork to full illustrated lore guides, every tier shall receive. The psychic might of the Grey Knights was a phenomenon that defied comprehension. Drawing parallels with the gestalt psychic energy of the Orcs, these stalwart knights could amplify their collective power to awe-inspiring levels. Together they became a symphony of force, every note struck in harmony, resonating with a force that could shear the bonds that tethered a demon to its malignant patron, or set ablaze the very air, burning away all vestiges of corruption. This unity of purpose, this congruence of thought, was a sight to behold. When channeled in unison, it was said that they could tear asunder the very weave of the cosmos, a maelstrom of force that reduced all to nothingness. And yet despite wielding such overwhelming power, their souls remained unblemished, a testament to their unwavering dedication and the Emperor's protective might. However, this purity was a point of contention. The ever-watchful eye of the Inquisition, 
knowing the corrupting allure of the warp all too well, often regarded such claims with suspicion. Within their enigmatic order, they organized themselves meticulously. Companies of a hundred, further broken down into squads of ten. These squads, each honing distinct psychic disciplines, were a marvel of synergy. Like finely crafted gears in an intricate machine, they moved and thought as one, turning their collective power into a finely tuned blade of psychic devastation. At the helm of each of these squads was the Justica, the Anchor, the Guiding Hand. Veterans of countless battles against the ruinous powers, these paragons exemplified the virtues of the Grey Knights. Their task was monumental. They had to channel the psychic maelstrom of their brothers, harnessing its raw fury and shape it into a weapon of precision. Every whisper of thought, every nuance of intention had to be accounted for and directed. To be a Justica was to bear the weight of the world, to stand resolute in the face of unimaginable power and responsibility. On the field of battle, they were legends incarnate, beacons of hope, whose tales would be told in hushed reverence amongst their brethren. In the dark and uncertain vastness of the galaxy, amidst countless threats, there stood a bulwark, the Grey Knights. To describe them as merely well-equipped would be an understatement of the highest order. Thanks to their privileged ties with Mars, the heart of the Adeptus Mechanicus, these warriors bore armor and weaponry the likes of which few in the Imperium had ever seen. Not just blessed with superior tech, each piece of their armament was intricately tailored to their singular purpose, to be the nemesis of chaos. The Terminator armor, a symbol of might and prestige amongst the Astartes, was plentiful within their armory. But this was no ordinary Terminator suit. Crafted to complement the unique capabilities of the Grey Knights, it was agile, streamlined, and offered an unparalleled melding of defense and mobility. Gone were the encumbering weapon attachments, instead leaving the hands free to masterfully wield the devastating Nemesis Force weapons. These two-handed masterpieces were more than mere blades. They were anathema to the denizens of the warp. A single sweep could sever the ethereal chains binding a demon or cleave through the thickest of demon-forged armors. Adding to their formidable arsenal was the wrist-mounted Stormbolter. No longer did they have to compromise between blade and bolt. With a swift gesture, they could unleash a hailstorm of sanctified rounds, even as their nemesis weapons danced a deadly ballet. But equipment alone wasn't what made the Grey Knights the apex predators of the Warp Touched. It was their tactics, their unyielding resolve. The Strike Squads exemplified this. They were the Vanguard the first to face the encroaching tendrils of chaos. When the very fabric of reality began to fray, hinting at an imminent demonic incursion, these squads were already there. Rapid deployment, precise strikes, and an unyielding defense were their hallmarks. Before the rest of the Imperium could even comprehend the threat, the strike squads would have purged the taint, standing defiant amidst the ashes, waiting for reinforcements, their positions unyielding come what may. In the shadowed and arcane echelons of the Grey Knights, there exist legends within legends. Among these, the Purifiers stand as a beacon of hope against the abyssal threat of chaos. Such is their innate power that they are the very anathema to demonic entities. Their mere presence on the battlefield is like the dawn's first light piercing through the darkest night. Demons, those creatures of pure warp energy and malevolent intent, find it unbearable. Where a Purifier steps, fire follows. Not just any fire, but a sacred inferno, 
A blaze that does not just consume, but purifies. But power isn't the only path to reverence. In a chapter where every brother is a psychic titan, there are those whose feats of courage, skill and indomitable spirit transcend even their inherent psychic might. The paladins are such beings. Cloaked in mystery and ancient rites, these elite warriors undergo trials that would be deemed impossible by even their Astartes brethren. The eight sacred quests of the paladins are whispered about in hushed tones, their details obscured by time and secrecy. Whether symbolic representations of spiritual journeys, or very real challenges against the foulest of Chaos's minions, the quests are designed to test the very soul of the Aspirant. To face a demon prince, stripped of armor, with only faith and skill as allies, speaks of a bravery that few can comprehend. Such quests are more than just trials, they are a metamorphosis. The honor that comes with such feats is not just in tales sung by chapter serfs or in the annals of the chapter's history. It manifests in their new roles. To guard the Grand Master of the Grey Knights, one must be the epitome of loyalty, skill, and power. But equally vital, perhaps even more so, is the duty to protect the apothecaries. In the brutal warfare of the 41st millennium, the apothecaries are not just healers, but the conservators of the future, ensuring the continuity of their chapter by safeguarding the invaluable gene seed. For a paladin, this duty is a sacred trust, a testament to their unmatched valor and unwavering duty. In the infinite expanse of the galaxy, amidst the countless stars and countless threats, stand the Grey Knights, the last bastion against a darkness that threatens to engulf all of creation. Birthed in secrecy, honed by sacrifice, and undying in their resolve, they are more than just warriors. They are the very manifestation of the Emperor's will against the malevolence of the Warp. In the hallowed halls of Titan, stories untold resonate in silence. Each night, an epitome of humanity's potential carries a legacy bathed in the blood of demons and underpinned by unimaginable sacrifice. Their adornments, not mere ornaments, but chronicles of valiant stands and fallen brothers, and yet the galaxy at large knows not their name, their deeds sung only in the silent void, and within the confines of their fortress monastery. Bound by 666 rituals, armored in faith, and wielding powers that could tear asunder reality, they remain incorruptible. Their purity, not just of body but of soul, is their greatest weapon. For in a universe where truth is malleable, and reality can be twisted by the whims of the warp, the Grey Knights stand unyielding. Their very existence is a testament to mankind's defiance against chaos. In the end, when histories are written and tales are told, the Grey Knights may remain but a whisper, a myth. But in the shadowed recesses of the warp, their name is a curse, a beacon of hope for humanity, and a clarion call of doom for the demonic. They are the silent guardians, the watchers in the void, the last line etched in the sand against an ever-encroaching darkness. And as the galaxy burns, they stand unbroken and eternal, a silvered shield against the night. Thank you for listening. If you like the artwork or want ad-free videos, please consider Patreon or becoming a YouTube member.